So the title is called The Gospel According to David's Sin. Verse 25, even though I'll be really covering the whole of the chapter. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Well, this is the word of the Lord and he'll most certainly add his abundant blessing to the reading of his holy truth. And although uh, Brother Rick prayed, um, I need prayer to be able to minister to you the word of God is a very serious thing. And uh, so I pray the Holy Spirit ministers unto you despite my, my shortcomings and my failings. Let us pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name and for His sake, we thank You, Lord, <coughs> for the blessing of Your Word, for the blessing of who Christ is and what He has done. May Christ be exalted as we worship You from the Word today, and that You are glorified. Uh, forgive us our sins, Lord. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and take those things that would uh, keep us from uh, giving you worship and glory, uh, from uh, the, those things that would distract us from our worship of you and our understanding of the Scriptures. We ask you, Father, that uh, by your Spirit you minister unto us, each and every one of us, from the youngest child to the uh, oldest adult, that uh, we are here to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name and for his sake we do pray. Amen. So as we look at... Uh, uh, just as a reminder, the end of David's life in the last three chapters of Second Samuel, in chapter 22, we saw David's last psalm, which equated to uh, basically a rewriting of almost word for word, but with slight differences, Psalm, cha- psalm 18. And then David's last words in Psalm chapter Second uh, Samuel chapter 23, as we looked at last week, and we just took one, uh, one little verse from that uh, to see the reign of Christ as uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel speaks prophetically under the hand and the power of the Lord. And then finally, here we are at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, David's last acts. Now, it says, as first one, I want to read it from the New King James Version, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. But we recognize here, as David sin, uh, sins by numbering the people, that in First Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, Now uh, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And here we see, by those two and bringing them both together, we see the work of God. We recognize that though uh, Job was tested and tried in the book of Job, it was Satan that brought about the testing. Uh, the, the Lord God is sovereign, as we see in Second Samuel 24. The people of Israel were sinning, but he brought it about through David and his sin. But he used Satan to do it. He used Satan to do it, as we see in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, because James tells us in the book of James in the New Testament, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So in these three verses that we see in Second Samuel 24, verse 1, the Lord God is sovereign. So we see God's sovereignty. In First Chronicles 21, verse 1, we see Satan's iniquity. And because he is a deceiver and a murderer from the beginning, 
God in his sovereignty brings about those temptations through Satan so that we recognize man's responsibility according to uh, uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. And so how it works out in the spiritual realm is that because David is a sinner, he has the capacity to be tempted and then to fall into that temptation. So therefore, God is removed from tempting the man, but being still sovereign, and as Satan tempts him, that capacity was within David. And think about that. We recognize that from 1 Samuel, all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. He is a man after God's own heart. His name, David, David, means beloved. He's the beloved of God. Because many times, more often than his sinful nature, he's seen as a type of the Messiah, a type of the Christ to come. His psalms bear that out, as he is the sweet psalmist of Israel, the prophet. And though still as a prophet, he is a man who has fallen. And so God brings also to him other fallen men who have an anointing upon them. Gad and Nathan were prophets during his reign. So, we see in the chapter, verses 1-9, through nine, David's sin in, uh, sins by numbering the people. But the people at this time, at the end of David's reign, they were sinful as well. And so God uses this occasion to, to present uh, the truth of their sin through the penalty upon sin. So David's sin is punished in verses 10 through 17. And then uh, verse 16 and 17, we see this, uh, we see in particular the threshing floor of Aruna. You pronounced it very well, brother. In fact, the English pronunciation is no different from the Hebrew pronunciation. Aruna. He's also called Ornan and uh, Ornan in First uh, Corinthians chapter three. There are other places where his name, Aruna and Ornan, are 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 possibly either two names of the same person, or his family name is Aruna, and possibly his his given name is Ornan. Or here's another possibility: he's a Jebusite. And remember that David reigned for seven years in Hebron, and then he captured the city of the Jebusites when the, when the uh, people of Israel under Joshua went in to take the promised land. Uh, uh, Jebus was the name of the city that is known today as Jerusalem. But they didn't take it. And it was up to David to take it, and they thought, well, because they're what they call holy people by their law, and since we have well, uh, the blind and the lame and the, and the maimed and the... And the uh, uh, those that can't hear and so forth, we'll put them out in front <laughs> of the city so they won't take it. But David went right on in there, took it, and said, this is called Jerusalem, you know, the city of peace. This is God's city. Uh, this is our city. But there were still Jebusites living there, apparently, because uh, Aruna, or Ornan, he is a Jebusite. And so possibly Aruna is his Hebrew name, and Ornan is his Jebusite name. Just a slight difference. So the threshing floor is key and significant right there. Uh, he's threshing out, Aruna's threshing out uh, his wheat. He has oxen, he has the sleds, uh, and it's breaking up the wheat and the chaff because it's a high place as Jerusalem is, is very high. It's about 700 meters, I think, somewhere just under 700 meters above sea level. And the Calvary 
I think Gordon's Golgotha is 777 meters above sea level, just a little bit higher. That's an interesting number, isn't it? 777 meters. Um, so there we have uh, David's sacrifice for sin in verses 18 to 25. And two significant features in the sacrifice is the purchase of the floor, the oxen and the instruments, uh, the, the threshing sleds made of wood and the yoke uh, that are upon the oxen. David used that to, to uh, uh, put up the uh, wood for the fire because fire came down from heaven for the offering. And then the plague was stayed through the offerings in verse 25. Verses 18 to 24, we see the purchase of the floor and David's statement. So that's the background and the overview of the entire chapter. But we see David's prophetic witness in this. This is why the title is called The Gospel uh, According to David's Sin. Um, we'll take it in just uh, three points. Uh, David's sins, David sins and uh, the angel smites. And then David sacrifice and the angel stays, or uh, uh, it uses a different uh, word in verses uh, verse uh, in the King, New King James version. He says his uh, the angel's sword is withdrawn, and in fact, in Chronicles, when it mentions this in First Chronicles chapter twenty one, it says that his it speaks of his sword is out of its sheath, but he puts his sword. The angel of the Lord puts his she, uh, sword back in its scabbard or back in its sheath. And then finally, uh, we'll see the designs by, uh, or excuse me, not finally, but thirdly, we'll see de- designs by uh, sovereign allegory for God's glory. Uh, this, this site is significant. And then finally, divine salvation in an awesome Savior. Uh, our concluding remarks because of this message. So David sins, and the angel smites. Uh, the two things that we should take away from this is a sober view of sin, and then number two, a serious penalty accompanying sin. The sober view of sin, which is so important today, uh, even in churches, that sin is just a, a, you know an oops. <laughs> well, I made a mistake. There's an error accompanying that, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, but we recognize what the Word of God says. Which, again, many churches are falling away from the Word of God. You know, the, from the uh, original autographs, the authority of Scripture, what the Reformers called uh, 400 years ago, 500 years ago. They called the sola scriptura. The authority is in Scripture alone. We may have our opinions and our conscience. However, the Word of God is that which gives us our uh, light and meaning and exalts Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father from Genesis to Revelation. And so our sober view of sin is, is thus. We recognize that Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. Or as the old King James Version says, come short of the glory of God. Consider that, uh, that um, Israel had sin in these last days of David's reign. And yet the Lord through Satan moved David's heart for an occasion against idolatry among his people. And so David's sin shows us that even God's beloved, which I mentioned before, even God's beloved, a man after God's own heart, is not free from sin. That one of the greatest and one of the, one of the most beloved characters of the Bible, that through his history, and though he is called a man after God's own heart, he is not impervious to sin. 
And so God using all that, and that there is sin in Israel because of the, of the reign of David and, dis, and his armies going against the Philistines. Even his uh, nephew Joab, you know, taking and, taking and being captain of the, of the armies of Israel and fighting on David's behalf, that the people were not standing upon the Word of God. They were not keeping the commandments of God. And thus there were things that were, that were equal to God or greater than God in their heart. And that's idolatry, the chief of all sins. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 says uh, that even Adam, who, even Adam who was created perfect, remember that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 he was told, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In Hebrew more literally, dying you shall die. And when he disobeyed God, he died immediately spiritually. Spirit of God that was in the, which was breathed into the breath of his, into his nostrils and he became a living soul. He d- died immediately. But he lived physically for 930 years. And as if a day is with the Lord a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, allegorically speaking, that 930 years is less than a thousand. So, so basically he died that day as well. Though he was created in wisdom, knowledge, and holiness, as Ephesians and Colossians tell us, that even though perfect, because he's made of the dust of the ground, there's only one perfect man who ever lived to glorify the Father, to honor him as a son, to be the prophet who spoke the word of God without corruption, to be the only Jew who ever kept the full commandments of God, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So we should take a sober view of sin, Churches are, are moving away from it. and not, not even addressing it. Where is salvation if sin is not even addressed? The, the reason why it's a gospel, it's good news, because there's bad news. That we are sinners, and there's a serious penalty accompanying sin. We know this. The penalty is death. So Romans 6.23 uh, says, For the wages of sin is death. The first part of it, because the last part of it speaks of eternal life in Christ. But the wages, for the wages of sin is death. We have offended an infinitely holy God by our sin, and we deserve His eternal wrath. Bless you. And so there's an error among some. They would suppose that, uh, you know, that the merciful, uh, the, that God is merciful, the, the merciful God, uh, He'll overlook because he's merciful. Therefore, he'll overlook sin. This is an error. That he'll overlook sin. Because they'll, they'll, they'll twist what it says in Romans chapter 3. That he, you know, that he winks at sin. That the sin's past. That's a lie from the devil. Sin must be punished. It must be dealt with. And Spurgeon says this of, it, of sin. And, and, and the punishment thereof. He says this, quote, The good order of the universe requires it. The justice of God demands it. The book of God threatens it. The hand of God continually executes it. Sin must be punished. He ends his quote. Why, now, so why only 70,000 dead? Why only, why did only 70,000 die in 2 Samuel chapter 24 as we read this account that 70,000 were 
executed there? Well, that's a fair question. I'm glad you asked it. I'll answer it. Because of the hope of the Messiah. Because of the hope of Messiah to come was even pronounced when Adam sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, and I will put, God said, saying to the serpent, Satan who uh, has actually possessed this, this serpent that can speak. Nachash in Hebrew. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first pronouncement of the gospel from the Bible. And so now there is hope. And even though there is death now reigning because of the corruption of Adam's disobedience and his sin against God, and men will die, but there is a Messiah coming, a Christ coming, a hope of life. And when you think of it in this feature, that Jerusalem is populated with so many people, but, and 70,000 would be a large number. Now, maybe this is all through Israel. Still a large number. So not everyone dies. And there were men of God, there were prophets of God, from Adam through a godly line, up until, up until Noah, and through those generations, the gospel is going forth, but sadly, the gospel uh, of God's hope for the human race was not adhered to, so only eight were saved during a worldwide flood. But as they repopulated the earth, God ministered through those descendants of Shem and to Abraham, he called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he brought forth a remnant, so there was always the hope of the Messiah coming. So we see that as David sins, then the angel smites that there must be punishment for sin. Sin is a horrible thing. And when we sin, even the smallest sin is infinitely sinful and infinitely heinous against God. Because He is holy and infinite and the sin against Him is infinite by virtue of who He is. Now we may sin against one another, but every sin even against one another, you know, a, a little white lie told, or stealing of this or that, robbing someone of time, just those little things. There's only so much time given us, and if I've frivolously robbed you of your time, that's a sin against you, but every sin is a sin against God, and so we've sinned against God who is an infinite God. But David's sacrifice speaks of a, of a great sacrifice to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. David's sacrifice now and the angel stays. Now, the reading of 2 Samuel kind of presents, um, kind of presents that now the voice of God came down and the angel stayed. And then David presents his sacrifice. But when you go to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you see that uh, we don't have a disparity there. That the, sac- that the angel staying and puts away the, he sheathes his scabbard is done by the sacrifice. But here in 2 Samuel, we see um, two things at work. We see the prophetic word of God because he says the, the, the announcement and the pronouncement of staying the angel of the Lord's hand. Stop. And then the actual sacrifice, so that they're clear to us that there must be a sacrifice given because there is a single remedy for sin. 
And then we see a saving grace from sin. The single remedy from sin could be summed up, you know, will you, first let me expound David's act. He comes in and as Gad brings him the truth of the punishment and then he puts it in God's hand rather than saying, because you know he was given three choices, uh, uh, famine for three months or he shall be run over by his enemies or that there will be a pestilence. There will be a pestilence uh, and uh, it will it will wipe out a number of people for three days. Well, let me put myself in God's hands, he says. And then as this is going, he sees at the threshing floor of Ornan, he sees this angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. And then he, and, and he, and, and, you know, Gad says that, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, Gad, that, that God ministers unto his heart that he needs to, this is the place. This is a place that is secure and holy because this is where the angel of the Lord is. And so he offers up sacrifice and he buys Aruna's uh, oxen and, his, and uh, his, uh, the instruments of the floor, uh, of the threshing, excuse me, and the threshing floor itself. And he pays, how much was it there? It was 600, uh, 600 shekels of gold. Now, on a rough calculation at today's measurement, and gold is what, $59 a gram? Um, maybe 60, we'll round it up to 60, and, and, uh, and a shekel is probably about 11 grams, they figure. So we're looking at 6,600 grams of gold. That would equate to some $360,000. In David's day, might as well, yeah, that's huge. To, equivalent to today, we're talking about possibly you know, millions of dollars for just this one patch of property the threshing floor of Aruna. And he makes that thing. Aruna's going to give it to him. You're the king, I'm going to give it to you. He says, uh, you know, unless the sacrifice costs me something, I can't have it. That's prophetic what he says. Because the treasure of heaven, God who became man, the second person of the Trinity, gave everything to sacrifice his life for us. He gave it all. He laid down his life. He suffered the wrath of God as he hung upon the tree. He died a death as a man. He bore our iniquities as if they were his own, never once saying and denying, no, they're not mine, though we know they're not his. He never once denied them. He was silent as a lamb before the slaughter. And then his blood was shed mercilessly by wicked men. We see how wicked sin is that when God becomes a man and dwells among us, that they reject him, they send him to the Romans to be crucified and put him to death and beat him mercilessly. mercilessly. Isaiah 52 and, and verse 13 says that he, his, his visage was more marred than any man and his form more than the sons of man. In other words, he was unrecognizable as a human being when he was beaten. But that beating didn't pay for our sins. God's wrath was poured out upon him as if he was accursed and a sin for us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. When Jesus hung upon that tree between heaven and earth, fully man and fully God, he represented man in all his sin. But as God, 
he took that eternal punishment on our behalf so that he is the Savior and the only remedy, the only remedy for sin. And the saving grace from sin, that was Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul wrote that. He wrote earlier to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, as far as the saving grace from sin. He presents a, a gospel picture and panorama in just a single verse. For he made him, that's God made Jesus, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness, he who was perfect upon the earth in everything, in thought, word, and deed, God applied it to our account for those of us who have believed by faith and trust in Him for that sacrifice and to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit to become new creations in Christ. David's sacrifice of oxen only foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice of Christ because we recognize that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so powerful is this saving grace that if Christ has saved you and you have fallen from sin, you've, you've sinned. If Christ has saved you because you have fallen in sin but you're saved and redeemed by saving grace and you've sinned that even His blood so precious that was spilled 2,000 years ago and that you've said something wrong, you've sinned in something ignorantly, or even your flesh rose up almost willfully. That It says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because His death on that tree, eternal, powerful, victorious, because though we're new creatures in Christ, we have been saved by His grace. We cling not to a cross that still has our Lord and Savior hanging upon it, but He is risen and ascended into heaven, dying a death truly because He was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, but risen and ascended into heaven, sending the Holy Spirit, and every confession of sin is cleansed by that blood because that blood is so powerful. He was virgin born. And perfect man. What a blessing it is that the grace of God in Jesus Christ would bring such hope to fallen men. And in the scene in Second Samuel chapter twenty-four, we see the designs by sovereign, the sovereign allegory, sovereign picture for God's glory, the foreshadows of why this place is important. It was a sac we see a sacrifice of a son by his father in Genesis 22 and verse 2, do we not? It's the first mention of the word love in the Bible, the Hebrew word ahav. It says, then God said, well it says, then he said, but it's God who is speaking since verse 1 of Genesis 22. Then God said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. That's where the love is, the first mention of love. Whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering, and on one of the mountains which I will tell you of. And you all know the story of Abraham, who's taking his son, who's probably about 33 and a half years old. 
He takes two servants with him. Why take children? You know, we all have those pictures from um, Sunday school. Not our Sunday school. I don't think Sister Vicky puts the little kid in there because the... Because he's, you know, Abraham's 133 years old. His son Isaac, being 33, because he's a type of the picture of Christ, going with two servants, because they use the same word, nar in Hebrew, for child or young man. So two other young men with him, because was Christ crucified alone? No, there were two men with him. Two thieves. So they go and they travel how many days? Three days. Wow, when was Jesus rec- uh, re- resurrected? Three days and three nights, because Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that in this offering of the sacrifice, that since this is the son of promise, he's going to raise him from the dead. He believed that. And he was going to go through with it, because they climbed up, and even the pictures of it with Isaac carrying the wood on his back, just as Jesus took the patibulum, the cross beam, and carried his cross to Golgotha, to Calvary. Carrying it up the mountain and saying, Father, um, well, here's the wood and here's the fire. (laughs) Where's the sacrifice? My son, God will himself provide a sacrifice. Or from Hebrew, you could read it like this. God will provide himself a sacrifice. And isn't that who Jesus is? He's very, he's, though he's very God, a very man, he's also very God. Fully God and fully man. No mixture of the two. But both natures in one man. He is God who was sacrificed in the very place where David offers his sacrifice. Moriah. Because we recognize that we recognize that uh, Second Corinthians, Second uh, Chronicles, chapter three and verse one, a son's temple where his father sacrificed. Solomon saying this. Now Solomon began to build the house of, the, or excuse me, the Lord saying this of Solomon. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So now you go from Genesis to 2 Samuel chapter 24 and get more pictures of this place where the temple would be built, where Christ would be condemned, and then sent another seven meters higher to hang on a tree of wood overlooking Jerusalem. This sacrifice that everything, as Jesus quoting Psalm 40 and verse, verses 7 and 8, low in the volume of the book, It speaks of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. And as Jesus himself paraphrased it before the, the, uh, the Pharisees and scribes and the chief priests that, that, that confronted him and conspired to kill him. John chapter 5 and verse 39, and he says, You search the Scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me. God was bringing from Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1-3, light be, let there be light, and the light of the world was shown little by little by little through all of Scripture to Revelation 22, verse 21. Amen. The last amen, because Jesus Christ is the great amen. The Alpha and the Omega. So now divine salvation in an awesome Savior, because I've run out of time. Divine salvation and an awesome Savior. A Savior, 
a sovereign salvation in the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus said in Matthew, he says, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and be, and, uh, and learn of me, for I'm uh, lowly in spirit. I'm humble in spirit. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. It's interesting that we would take the, that term yoke and the yoke of the oxen as well as the threshing sled is what D- David used for the, for the kindling on the altar at the threshing floor of Orn- Ornan and then divided up the oxen and the flame from heaven came down. The wrath of God came down upon the sacrifice just as the wrath of God, foreshadowing the wrath of God that would consume the soul of Christ. But Isaiah 45 and verse 22, very simple thing. Isaiah 45 and verse 22 says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Seems simple to look at Jesus. Yet it's the hardest thing in the world for sinners to do because they will not come unless the sovereign grace by the Spirit constrains them. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, the first part of it, He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Because our flesh so stubbornly rebels against the Gospel. It hates the Gospel. So we need the Spirit of God to draw us. Even even for us who are saved, our flesh still rises up because though you're saved and, and, and 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that you're a new creation in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. But as I tell you time and again, probably over redundantly from the Department of Redundancy Department, that you're, <laughs> that you're still born with a body that you were born with as a sinner we get sick, we get COVID-19, and you know we get old, we get bad backs. We don't want. The flesh is corrupt. It's dying daily. Evidence that we need His grace moment by moment. We need to surrender to Jesus every single moment of every single day. No one can come to Him unless the Spirit draws Him because our flesh rebels against it. And so His Spirit must minister unto us to awaken us to the truth of the Gospel. Because the supreme Savior from the Lord is Jesus Christ. Because though He says that, and we cannot come unless He draws us, He provides this promise. In John 6, verse 44, the second part, He says, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Because He's that powerful. His sacrifice is that good, that lovely, that wonderful. That sacrifice is that powerful. That He can raise us in that day and the corruptions that continue to rob us of the Gospel, to keep us from the Gospel, detract us with everything else but the Gospel, the power of Christ will bring us back in. And if you're saved, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice! Because Jesus died for you. And has therefore released you from condemnation and has secured your eternal redemption. It's eternal because He is eternal. God who became man. And so that is a powerful truth that you can lean to and lean upon every single day. We'll lean upon His everlasting arms. Oh, how glorious is that? That we have a Savior that isn't just passing by. 
We have a Savior who is eternal, reigns from heaven, and is coming again. And if you're not saved, can you say that you trust in Jesus as the only sacrifice to release you from the condemnation of sin? That even this word here, if the Spirit is ministering to you, can minister to you to say there's no other hope but Jesus. And there's no other that we can trust but Jesus. Are you secured by Christ unto eternal redemption? Has Christ opened your blind eyes to see He is your only hope? May the Lord Jesus do so today and that you may know eternal joy with the Master, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name and for His sake, we thank You, Lord, for the for the blessing of who Christ is and what He has done. May that powerful witness that we see in Second Samuel minister to us the truth of what happened 2,000 years ago in that very place when Jesus, who is the descendant of David according to the flesh, but is truly the Son of God according to the Spirit, who ministered the one and only sacrifice, which all other sacrifices pointed to, may it be Him who is exalted in our lives day by day by your grace, that you may be glorified as you make us more and more like Jesus. In his name and for his sake we do pray. Amen.